0: The following sermon is from Christ Church, Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. I'm preparing a sermon series for the week after Easter and following, and as we lead up to Easter Sunday, I've just been asking the Lord each week, what is it that you want to speak to us as a church? And this week, He directed my attention to... The new commandment, which is found in John's gospel, chapter 13 and verse 34, I'll expand that context just slightly and we're gonna read verses 33 to 35. These may be familiar verses to you, but there's something that God wants to get at us and I hope that we're able to experience that together. Uh, The sermon title is The Strength to Love. The Strength to Love. I stole that from a Martin Luther King Jr. sermon. I am plagiarizing the title. Everything that follows though is original. John 13, 35, 33 to 35. Little children, Jesus says. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, these are powerful words and these are words that have been treasured by the church of Jesus for a couple thousand years and have shaped the way many people look at the calling of Christ in our relationship but it's i'd say nearly impossible to connect with the the scope of the moment that Jesus spoke these words in it's near to impossible for us to Experience the tension of what the disciples were experiencing specifically for what they were about to understand, but what Jesus knew. It's even harder to grasp what the requirements and implications of these words are, and particularly this new command. And it had me thinking how life is like a series of life-altering events. You know, a lot of our life, just our memory just kind of disappears into vagary. You know, we have like, you think about the year 2017. And if nothing particularly meaningful happened in 2017, if it was just a normal year for you, you may have a hard time remembering one particular event in 2017 without really scratching your head. Do you know what I'm talking about? But some of you turned 50 in 2017. And some of you lost a loved one in 2017. And some of you um, won the lottery in 2017. Some of you watching online, I don't know. Something notable happened, and you go, 2017. And I have years like that in my life where I can say, this was a year where everything changed. And sometimes the very moment of that change happens with a lot of anticipation. Um, graduation, it's coming, you know it's coming, and when it comes, it is going to now usher you into a new season, right? Uh, the birth of a child, maybe your first child. Uh, you kind of know it's coming, <laughs> right? You have a little bit of time to prepare. And there's these moments that become pivot points in life. And sometimes those moments, we don't even know they're happening. Do you know what I'm talking about? The the day I met my wife is one of those days for me. If you ever get to hear the story, um, so Tiffany and I met. And when we met, it was nothing special at all on the outside. So we had a mutual friend. One of my best friends growing up was... Uh, his aunt who was very close to his neighbors with Tiffany. And so he visited his aunt regularly and they literally grew up together and he and I grew up together, but we never met Tiffany and I. And so one fateful summer when I was 18 and she was 17, our mutual friend invited me to join him house sitting in Tiffany's neighborhood for a friend of his and he didn't have a car. And so I drove him up there. And so here we are just having a, a Friday like any other Friday Sitting in some dude's house in Argyle Forest, Orange Park, Jacksonville, Florida, and there we are, with assuming nothing, expecting nothing. Now I was in this; I had just gotten really serious with my walk with the Lord, and so I, I was a little girl crazy before that. I was always trying to get attention from from girls. I was always super flirty and trying to make trying to make everybody laugh. I got friend zoned most of the time, and uh, so so I I was like in this season where I was like trying to just be like head in the word, heart after God. I didn't want to be distracted. And so like, I was like purposely paying zero attention to pretty girls. Now, Tiffany walked in the room and I was a little annoyed. And my buddy was like, let me call my friend over. And I'm thinking, oh, great. He's going to be just like, you know, whatever after this girl. And it's going to ruin our whole thing. I have my mindset on what this is going to look like. And of course, they were like brother and sister. And so she she comes in. And of course, I noticed she's beautiful, obviously, which makes her threat level midnight. And so I got my head in a theological book and I'm trying to be real serious. I remember her walking in and, and I'm just like, oh great, you know, like perfect. Like what a distraction this is. And so I'm just like, hey, how's it going? Head down in the book. And it was a moment um, that could have turned, she could have walked into me like, oh, that guy's a jerk and this doesn't sound like fun. So I'm gonna leave. And that could have been the end uh, of my life as I now know it, right? And yet something happened there, innocuous as that moment was, that literally changed the course of our lives forever. And we live our our lives in days that have the potential of being that kind of moment. Do you realize that? Sometimes these things change in beautiful ways, like meeting your spouse. Sometimes they come after you start to feel a weird pain and you go to the doctor and it's a diagnosis and your life is now on a totally different course than you ever imagined. And so a day like today, a day like any other day, can become a moment when everything changes for you. Now, God knows, but we do not. And so this moment was one of those moments for the disciples. They, are, they have been following Jesus for three years. They're, they're in Jerusalem, which was a scary place for them to be because the religious elite were after them. They wanted to stop Jesus. They wanted to arrest him, ultimately, to, to kill him. He knew that. Disciples were a little spooked, but they're in Jerusalem keeping the feast together. They're at this Passover and Jesus is talking weird. He's saying stuff he normally doesn't say. He's doing things he normally doesn't do. And in this setting, the disciples are trying to understand what about this kind of innocuous moment is so ominous. And so it's in this setting that Jesus utters these words. He says, little children. And I love that Jesus called the disciples little children. Like he's 33, Peter's probably 50 at this point. My little children, can you imagine? My precious little ones. Little children, yet I am with you a little while. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, and so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. This is Jesus speaking about what he knows is about to happen and where the disciples are gonna find themselves only hours from now. Everything changes and they are separated. And so it's with that knowledge that Jesus speaks, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, if you've been paying attention, Jesus has been talking a lot about loving one another. It doesn't sound specifically like a new commandment. Any of you wonder? You ever read that and go, how, how, how is this new exactly? Didn't you say in Matthew 22 and 39 that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, and mind and strength. And the second was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And didn't we talk a lot about, well, then who is my neighbor? And then what love looks like and how it should be indiscriminate. And haven't we been talking about what the kingdom of heaven looks like? And it's all about love for a neighbor. And it is all about laying down your life for other people. Like That's like Jesus' main bread and butter. And yet here he's saying a new commandment I say to you. And when you say new, Jesus says new, this is getting everybody's attention. But he says here with a new modifier, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. And he adds that verse 35, this is gonna become the distinctive feature that's going to indicate to people that you are connected with me, that you are a follower of me by your love one for another. Now, I read these words and I know that they are true and I've experienced them in fits and starts, but are you not like me? Do you not look around the world and see a world in chaos, in a power struggle of calamity and war and evil and brokenness? And then you look to the solution, the church, and you see group upon group of people who can't get along and just criticize each other constantly and who get nothing done and squander God's resources? Is that not more than a little frustrating? You're like, we've been after this a couple thousand years, folks. What happened to all the whole love one another and by this all people will know that you're my disciples. Does that ever get a little frustrating to you? It's easy to criticize the big picture, but what about when we take it to our own hearts? How is it that we are supposed to fulfill this commandment? What is our own challenge? Some of us got here to church today and we're like, I'm just trying to figure out how to stay married to that guy. (laughs) I'm here just trying to figure out how to have peace in my home. I'm trying to figure out what do I do to reach out to this person I'm estranged from, my relative. You know, we're, we're all in like real life here, let's be honest. And what Jesus is saying is that we're commanded by the son of God, eternal with the father, one in essence, to be loving each other in the very same way that he loved us and the net effect of that would be a witness, just the way we take care of our own, would show the world what Jesus is like. And that's what he said. And so it gets me thinking, well, why is it that that isn't happening more? And what factor are we overlooking or failing to understand in order to get this right? And I don't think it's actually that complicated. And I'm gonna try to explain it to you with a little bit of time that I have. And this may run into next week. That is very possible. (laughs) Whenever we're dealing with an ethical or moral imperative, whenever there's a command given or a rule or an expectation of virtue, whenever this happens, we have to drill down beneath the surface and evaluate both the motive for carrying out this virtue and the source of this power, we have, that's what we have to do. Think about this with me for a second. And this, let me give you an example. I was driving down International Speedway Boulevard yesterday and I saw a woman driving a convertible with the top down, wearing a N95 mask <laughs> by herself. This is not an Uber driver. Now listen, if you're wearing a mask, Places, I'm not giving anybody any heat for wearing a mask. If it makes you feel safer to wear a mask, no problem. I will never judge anybody for wearing a mask. If you're wearing a mask by yourself in Florida, in a convertible, driving, I have questions. You know? I do, I have questions. I I was, the most charitable thing I could think was maybe she just had a nose job and doesn't want anybody to see. I mean, that's what I was trying to to reach for, right? But it it had me questioning, like, what what is the motive? Like, what is... What is the logic here to make this decision? Now, I don't know, and so I can't judge. I didn't have a chance to... I never got like, next to her at the stoplight where I could have rolled down and asked, but it definitely percolated my curiosity, and I really would like to know. And so if you're that woman and you're listening, I'm not judging, but could we talk? I really am... I'm really honest. But, here, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, there is a motive to do this thing. Now masks became the, this virtual virtue signaling thing for a while. And did you guys notice that? Like if you believe the narrative that, and you wear the mask, literally you can tell people by mask wearers and non-mask wearers in some settings, what they believe and what their ideology is. And it is it was a moral statement about, about whose side am I on? That's kind of where it got. Now we're not letting that come into the church and we don't mistreat anybody with or without a mask. We had a funeral yesterday, people in masks. Nobody's getting criticized for anything. Everybody's free to do their own thing and make their own decisions. But when it comes down to what are the things you choose to do and not, you have to deep drill down a little bit to understand what is your motive? Why are you doing this? And I don't know, because I can't see into this woman's heart. I can only see through her convertible. (laughs) I don't know what the motive is. But then also, when it comes time to do things that are very, very difficult, maybe even humanly impossible, like loving other people the way Christ has loved us, where does the power to do that come from? Do you understand? And so we got to drill down a little bit. Anytime there's a moral imperative, we got to go down a little bit to figure out why, why would I do this? And then where does the source of power come from? Now, the problem is, is that in all of humanity, there is a religious spirit. There is a works-based, I'm going to, I'm going to pull myself up by my proverbial bootstraps. I'm going to do the right thing, get this done. I'm going to approve something to God or others. I'm going to find it within myself to do right or to do well. And I'm going to feel good about myself because I have done well, or I'm going to garner God's favor or or something. All of us have this religious impulse. Even the most ardent atheist is wired this way. Do you realize this? And so it it is completely... We can be completely inconsistent and yet still have this religious spirit. And when I talk about that, and we talk about what Jesus has come to do, we're brought into this dichotomy between an internal transformation and external behavior modification. Do you know that? Now, I was raised in church, so I know external behavior modification. I do. I know that I ha- you have your, your play clothes and your church clothes, right? Right? <laughs> You have your neighborhood vernacular and your church vernacular, right? There's the words that you say around your friends and there's the words that you use when you're in church. And so we all know when we get together what some of the rules are and then we start to play by those rules when we get around each other. And so there's there's this can be this kind of social pressure, external modification. And some of us are even on a journey. We're trying to grow out of some bad habits. And so we get a list and we work the thing. And if you work the program, the program works. And there can be a, a religious impulse to start on the outside and work your way in. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's not abnormal. Every human being experiences it to some degree or another. Now, the problem is, is that when we have this external modification approach, we end up utilizing a set of rules to self-reform, which becomes the standard of our judgment, evaluation of ourself, by necessity, turns into our judgment of other people. Because these are the standards I hold myself to, now they're the standards that I use to apply it to everybody else, which means we become a little judgy. just happens. And then we start to use that same diagnosis to come up with an understanding of what's wrong with the world, and whether we think about it or not, even subconsciously, we will create and prescribe an antidote to everyone's problems. If only they would fill in the blank. If people would just fill in the blank. Do you understand? Do you find yourself uttering these statements? It's okay to nod, I do because it's a natural impulse that all of us have. Now, contrast that to the internal transformation that Jesus talks all about. He says, you're supposed to not utilize an external set of rules. You are supposed to receive something from God. You're supposed to receive spiritual life on the inside, power and wholeness, as God then removes from the inside of you every obstacle through forgiveness, and then nearness by his Holy Spirit. And then we draw upon him for life, and it's his life that then flows through us to other people. Do you see how this is supposed to work? And so Jesus is operating in this command with the underlying presupposition that his disciples are both gonna have the motive and the source to fulfill this commandment because of their connection with him, okay? He is not prescribing a new way to get things done and i'll illustrate this for you whenever you use this external modification approach you your rules get longer and longer and longer and longer watch in the bible this happens god says to adam and eve how many rules did god give adam and eve don't eat from the tree right one rule and so they obviously failed at that, and then ushered the world into darkness, and Cain and Abel, and by the time you get to Noah, all knowledge of God is lost, and the world is a terrible, terrible place where people are doing all sorts of terrible things, but there's no laws, and so how do you know what's illegal, immoral, or wrong when there is no law, but when God reinstitutes after this judgment, it reinstitutes, it's calling for Adam and Eve on Noah, well, now we get a couple new laws, now we're getting, here's what you're supposed to be doing, and also you can't take a human life, and also you can eat meat, and also, and so you end up with a A larger list and then you get into God leading his people through the wilderness and how many commandments do we get ten Ten. it's not a trick question there's 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 no 11 year olds in here to answer quickly Uh, ten commandments and then what happens in the rest of the Torah you get all these rules, 613. Some of you Bible nerds knew that, 613. By the time you get to Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, the Pharisees have made a factor of 12 on every one of those 613 rules. There is, there is volume upon volume upon volume of all the rules you have to keep. This is why they criticize Jesus constantly. Your disciples don't wash their hands ceremonially. You, you made a little um, snack walking through a field on the Sabbath day. That broke seven of our rules. There's rule upon rule upon rule. And this happens in our... In our, in our world too, in the church. You try to follow Jesus and do what's right and love other people, love God, love other people. But if you take this approach of external modification, what do you do? You end up with the 21 rules of the house. You end up with the, these are the movies we watch and these are the words we say and this is the way that we dress and this is the schedule we keep and these are the jobs we have and this is the way we do this and this is the way we do that. I don't, you know, you're, you're, you're not allowed to, to drink or smoke or chew or dance with girls who do. <laughs> right? Where's that? Where's that written? Where's the the rule book? But we're really good at making rules. Can I get amen? amen? And part of the thing is we think that if we just have all the rules and we do all the rules, then everything will get better. But the problem is not outside of us, and it's not getting the right list of rules to the right people, because you will find a whole group of people that don't care about your rules. They're not interested. They have zero motive to do things your way, and neither do you. I mean... Radical Islamists would like to subject all of us to Sharia law, right? And they think that would make the world a better place. It's on both sides of the Atlantic, everybody. Everywhere you go, this impulse exists. Rules, 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 rules. Now, here's the difference. When you end up in a life giving relationship with the God who made you through what He has done for you, He not only creates in you the motive to obey him, but he sources you with the power to do it. And when that happens, you end up with less and less and less and less rules. Jesus came on the scene and instead of saying, all the many rules the Pharisees give you, you ought to do, he didn't say that. He did say your righteousness should exceed the the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, how does that get done? Jesus said, all of those laws can be fulfilled in these two greatest commandments. If you love God and you love others, you've got this. Do you realize this? He says all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then Jesus even simplifies it further for his disciples here in John chapter 13. You want to know what makes God feel loved? You want to know the way God wants you to worship him? Love one another the way I have loved you. And Jesus isn't going to tell you to do something that he isn't giving you the source, the power, the strength to do. The strength to love is inherent in the command because the command is connected to Jesus. Love others the way I have loved you. And so two things matter here. One has to do with who is Jesus to you? Think about that for a second. Who is Jesus to you? Notice what Jesus says here. He says, little children, yet a little while... uh, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, if you have a study Bible or if you're on an online version, there'll be a little footnote there and you can click it and it'll say something like, just a reference to John chapter seven and verse 34, where Jesus said this very same thing to the Jews. He just said to them, where I'm going, you can't come. He said that twice, actually. One time they were like, is he going to off himself? Is that what he's talking about? Is this like code for Jesus has got some suicidal ideation going on here? And then in John chapter seven, Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they're like, is he going to like leave? Would he just get out of our hair and go off to the Greeks and the Gentiles and teach this nonsense to them? Is that, is, that would be great if that happened. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out what it is that he is saying. And part of the problem is that they've already rejected Jesus because he's not playing by their rules. You see, Jesus came on the scene into a very religious environment wonderful moral religious people who had created rule upon rule to keep god's rules with an expectation that if everyone would just do what they were supposed to god would usher in his kingdom to israel and the world would be as it is and what was holding the people back from the kind of transformative global dominion of god's people on the earth was not a missing messiah it was the fact that people who knew well didn't do better this was the pharisees mission was to get you cleansed and clean and living rightly and obeying all the rules. And Jesus comes on the scene, claiming to be of God, from God, one with God, and ignoring all of their rules on purpose. He's like, it's the Sabbath, ready to get busy. Poke a finger in the eyeball of every Pharisee. Where's my opportunity here? He did it over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because he wanted to expose to them that their external modification did nothing to solve their problem because their problem was in the heart. Jesus came to deal with that problem by becoming a substitute for sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Ezekiel 37 calls the spiritual heart transplant. It's what Jeremiah 33 called the new covenant. It's everything God would do for a humanity that couldn't do it for themselves. It's a miracle of God and a gift of his grace. And unless you receive it, you can't follow his one rule. Do you know it? And so if you're here trying to be a more loving person, but you don't have a life-giving relationship with Jesus, good luck. And so who is Jesus to you? Hmm. Present day Christians who have this religious spirit, I believe have a Jesus of their own making. Uh, I listen to a lot of sermons, a lot, a lot of sermons from all kinds of different backgrounds, all parts of the world. Everywhere I can hear people talk about Jesus, I do. And there is a lot of moralistic teaching out there about what you ought to do that never once touches the nature and character of who Jesus is or what he's done for you. And the implicit promise is that if you will just do what you're told, your life will get better. And mostly that's it. Actually a lot of Christian teaching doesn't have any eyes beyond anything, but your improved marriage and finances and parenting, and ultimately you having the most blessed life you can find. And if we just break it down into a handful of helpful rules, and of course those rules get bigger and bigger and bigger. And oftentimes when I hear them talk about Jesus, I'm like, I don't know that Jesus. That Jesus doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know, the Jesus that I read. And I wonder how many of us have a Jesus of our own making. A Jesus that fits the stereotype of what we think people should be like. Obviously, when we create rules to make things better, we typically create rules that work really well for us. Do you know that? I don't have a temper at all. Like you can't get me mad. If you find me mad, something really bad has happened. You can say anything to me. I don't go off the handle. I don't yell and scream at people. I don't have a bad temper at all. It would be very easy for me to say, you know what the problem in this world is? Angry people with no (laughs) self-control. And what I'm saying is, is if people could just be more like me, the world would be better. Some of you are like, no, we need principled people to take a stand, speak truth to power. Like, oh, really? Is that what we need? (laughs) And so we take our own impulses to moral external modification, and we throw a projector up on the wall, and we end up crafting a Jesus that looks a whole heck of a lot more like us than like him. And that Jesus of our own making doesn't have the power to fuel the love that God has called us to live with. And I believe that's the love that actually will transform our marriages, our families, our churches, our communities, and the world. It's time for us to get our eyes off of ourselves and our best attempts at cleaning up our mess and doing better and making things right and getting, and getting the, 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 the good marriage and the right family and the kids off to college and faithful and with their children and the legacy and the retirement and get our eyes onto the world's actual problem is that as we all need what only God can do for us and he's done for it. He's done it for us in the person of Jesus. And this is what the scriptures have always used. I mean, this is always the model. Here's a couple of examples. Galatians 5, 18, 26. You guys know this because the fruit of the spirit is listed there, right? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Fruit of the spirit's not a coconut. The kids all know this, all right? You might as well, I mean, the kids know this, but you know that verse starts with a but? You ever notice that? But the fruit of the spirit it's converse with something else. Look back to verse 18. There's another but there actually. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So it's not about you law keeping. It's about you having a life-giving relationship with God and following the Holy Spirit. He leads you in the way you ought to go. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is all the stuff that just comes naturally out of people when there's no restraint. You guys realize this, right? This is just what's in the heart of humanity. This is not a list of the bad people and you're on the good people. Aren't you glad you're like, most of the things on that list, I do not do. (laughs) If that was your response, you missed the point. (laughs) I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but listen, the fruit of the spirit, that connection we have through Jesus, where we have a source from him to obey. And we can focus that source on simply treating the person in front of us the way he has treated us. That's it. One rule. Look what flows out of that heart. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You don't need any restraining factors external restraining rules, negative commandments if you are simply being led by the spirit and loving the person in front of you, sourced by Jesus with love as your motive. Do you see that? Do you see the simplicity of that? What ought I to do? What does love require of you? And Jesus gives you the strength to love. Hmm. The Jews uh, rejected Jesus. And maybe some of you are here and you're not Christians or you're listening and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just like, eh, Jesus, nice guy, teacher maybe, historical figure, possibly maybe a myth for weak minded people to have something to cling to. The Jews totally rejected Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, I said I was going away. Same thing I said to the Jews, and where I'm going, you can't come. If you go back to chapter seven, and you should read chapter seven. Go back and read chapter seven this week. That's my my challenge to you. Go back and read chapter seven. Um, Jesus said this to the Jews and they said, First off, they were like, well, is he gonna get out of our hair? Is he going to the Greeks? I don't know. But then the focus of chapter seven and the end of chapter seven comes down to the fact that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. That was their conclusion. And here's the, here's the ridiculous thing about judgmental religious people is that once you've rejected something, there is no convincing you of anything else. You are already convinced and you have it in your mind the way that it is. And here,. Oh, meow, meow, meow. Even, even if you read chapter seven, he, the Jews send someone to arrest Jesus. The officers get there. Jesus is preaching. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he's saying all these amazing things and they don't arrest him. They come back and the, the Jews are like, where's Jesus? And they're like, you should have heard what he was saying. He was like speaking with power and authority. He was epic. They're like, what? You didn't bring him back? No. And then Nicodemus kind of speaks up and he's like, I mean, could this be the one? No, it can't be the one. He's from Galilee. The Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, end of story. Do you see this? This religious impulse shuts out what God has actually said. And in chapter seven, Jesus doesn't show them his birth certificate. If you read the Bible, you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, escaped to Egypt and then raised in Galilee of Nazareth. He is Jesus of Nazareth. The Nazarene, there's denominations named after the small town he grew up in. Do you realize this? It was the fulfillment of Micah 5, 2, Hosea 11:1, Isaiah 9. It's everywhere. Where Jesus came from was exactly what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. Do you see this? If Jesus wanted to prove to somebody who he was, why didn't he go, Bethlehem, Egypt, Galilee, read and weep, boys. Right? But that's not what he did. He didn't have to, and here's why. Self-assured people don't have to prove anything to anybody. Religious people, on the other hand, woo! Let me show you all the ways I'm better than you. Thin-skinned people, insecure, broken, propping up their value with all of their external behaviors, all the ways they do all the right things, and we're trying so hard. Every religious person is about to pop all the time. Do you realize this? They will literally go off on you if you just press the wrong button. <laughs> Jesus didn't feel the need ever. He said, he said what God sent him to say. He invited everybody to come to him. He didn't harp on people. I mean, that chapter seven, you know that story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery? You know the story where the woman's brought in front of Jesus naked or with a blanket over her or something. This woman's caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned what do you say one of the most epic kind of tests of jesus you know that story probably wasn't written by john and that story sat alone as a little fragment of a story we don't even know who wrote it and it floated around all the churches and it was preached on and sometime in the early part of church history when they were compiling the canon of scripture They just decided to stick it right here in John chapter seven and verse 53 into 811. Did you know that? There's, There's notes in there. People tell you the Bible's full of inconsistencies and errors, it's not reliable. And I'm like, every time that there's like even a minor adjustment, there's like a whole footnote about it. But you know, when it was put into John's gospel, it was put right there because it demonstrated what Jesus was like. He wasn't thin skinned. He wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. And he didn't expect anybody to do anything other than to reflect the brokenness on the inside of them. And so he saw this woman caught in adultery and he didn't come to her with a rule or punishment or a penalty. He came to her with forgiveness. He came to her with power to find wholeness, to stop pursuing life in places that were destructive, to be welcomed into a loving relationship with God, to be valued as a human. And when he did that, everybody dropped their rocks and walked off because of who he was. And when you experience a life-giving relationship with Jesus, these two things happen. The first is all of your insecurities disappear. All of your shame falls off. All of your effort to look good or to be good enough or to fit in or to find a place, it falls off like shackles and you're free. And you find, you're sand. you find yourself standing before God, valued for who you are not judge for what you've done. You find yourself adored, precious, and you find a God that wants to live in you and walk with you and lead you in ways that are life-giving to you and change the world. And Jesus plans to take this individual relationship and put people together that have an example to look to of how we ought to treat one another. And can you imagine, forget, forget the world, forget that, everybody else for a second. If just the people who say, I'm with Jesus. If we woke up every day to the internal transformation that our relationship with Jesus brings about, and we just let the, the vulnerability work its magic, if we just let the guard fall down, if we were willing to just walk in wholeness before God and other people, not need to gain the acceptance of the people around us or fit into the the moral virtue signaling can you imagine i mentioned i mentioned the story about meeting tiffany what an innocuous moment that was and how it changed my life forever but on our 10th anniversary uh we went on a trip and we didn't have any money so we split a vacation house with two other friends two other couples we thought that was a good idea and um When we were living in this house with these other people, which we never had done before, we were sharing a house for a week, um, my behavior changed. I started treating my wife badly. I started um, speaking harshly to her, and making fun of her, and I never did that before. And it, it wasn't because I didn't like her, but I'd been harboring secret feelings of resentment and disrespect from her, but I didn't have the courage to actually talk to her about it. And it never, I just kept it beneath the surface. In fact, I was a very dishonest person, very inauthentic. I was trying to manage all of my relationships. I was trying to control what everybody thought of me all the time and I had no idea. Very, very unhealthy. And being in this environment, I, I started defending myself and, and like digging at her because I was embarrassed by being spoken to the way that she spoke to me in front of my friends. My behavior changed. It started a six month long crisis in our marriage that could have ended in divorce. It was that bad. A day like any other day. And I'll tell you the only thing that's got Tiffany and I loving each other and staying in covenant with each other is because we're not trying to prop up anything to get the other person's approval. The only reason we have hope to be able to be influential in the world or to lead a group of people to be a loving group of people is not because we have it all figured out or we're so great. It's that we know Jesus. He forgave us. He strengthens us. He's the value add to us. I'm nothing. I am nothing. Without Jesus. If there's anything good I have to offer you, it's because He's done it for me and in me and just can do it through me. I, I don't have anything to offer you or anybody else apart from what he has given to me. Do you realize this? And this is what empowers love. This is what gives us the strength to love. It's when we wake up to say, all I need, I have found in him. And this is where I'm at. And I'm looking to him for the power to work through this internal transformation. And when I take that first step out in faith, led by the spirit, what comes out of me because of the supernatural power of God is love. It's not my strength. It won't be yours, but it's time to drop the charade. It's time to stop trying to get it all from the outside in it's time to stop with all the rules and all the new things and all the ways we do things and try to find your people that have your set of rules and do things just the way you want to do, feel good about yourselves and make zero difference to the world. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that if we would take this seriously and if we would lean into our personal relationship with Jesus, if we would come before him all out there completely exposed and experience the love and acceptance and forgiveness and power, we would walk every day with the strength to love the person in front of us. Unafraid, unafraid of what they say, what they think, whether we're loved, accepted, celebrated, and if we can do that together, that will be a light in a dark place, and maybe the start of something great. I've taken up all the time we have, brothers and sisters, and there are dozens and dozens of energetic children ready to be released to their wonderful parents, <laughs> and um, and I have a lot more to say, and so uh, we'll we'll resume next Sunday back in John chapter 13. But I want to pray for you. And I want to pray specifically if you're here and you just know I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm just not a Jesus follower. I'm in church for these six reasons. I'm glad the church didn't fall down, lightning didn't strike it, didn't catch fire when I walked in. If that's you, um, this is for you. Uh, Every single one of us who are Jesus followers, it's just because we recognize the need in us and we receive God's gracious gift. And that gift is being offered to you today and it's as simple as saying, I'll take it. Yes, please. Uh, I'll take every good thing you have and I'm going to give you my my, my mess and uh, we'll start this journey together. And if you want to pray that prayer and if you want to make today an innocuous moment like any other, the day your life changes forever, I'd like to invite you to do that. And I'm going to pray for you and our prayer teams are going to be right up here. Uh, don't don't leave with anything that you wish you didn't have. Don't leave don't, don't leave here with your baggage, brothers and sisters. This is a beautiful place for you to leave your baggage with Jesus and pick up uh, the light yoke of following him, amen? Father God, I thank you for the miraculous work that you do on the inside of us. But all of us are just broken people. We're broken in different ways and have different experiences, uh, but all of us need your forgiveness and love and acceptance. And it's the only thing that truly makes us whole and gives us the strength to obey you and to follow after you. And so, Lord, I just pray for myself and for my friends, Lord, that we would come more and more every single day as we know you better to experience your love for us and then to be a conduit of love to other people. God, I pray that you would make us into a church so loving, so humble, and so service-oriented, Lord, that it would just be, it would be a a shock to people outside of the kingdom of heaven, and it would be an irresistible light, and you would attract people into your family. God, I know that it transforms marriages and transforms families and transforms uh, difficult situations, but Lord, we mostly want you, and so I just pray specifically for anybody who's here this morning who's never made the conscious choice and enacted their ability to believe and trust and have faith, to put their uh, soul into your care and to receive your forgiveness and to become one of your children. I pray right now, God, as their heart is thumping in their chest and they know this is what they need to do, that they would not pass this opportunity, but that they would march up here to the front of this room and give their life to you. And let this be the moment everything changed for them. God, do your work. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Holy Spirit, we commit these words to your work in our hearts. Lead us specifically and individually. Uh, Bring about the fruit that you want to in each of our lives. We expect that you will. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Do not hesitate. Come on down here let us pray for you if that's you.